0: How's everybody doing? Yeah, man. Man, I tell you what, it's hard not to come out of your shoes when you're singing so clearly and succinctly about uh, what life is about. You know, Jesus, our redemption, you know, he's the light of the world, man. It just, I was in the back. If you heard anybody shouting, it was definitely me. Um, it's, it's so amazing. And Dave's right. And I just feel like we have been in this season Recently, just where you realize worship is not just this thing that God is worthy of our worship, and He is. He is absolutely worthy of it, but He doesn't need it. But man, don't we? Uh, We need to be reminded. We need to be in that place of understanding and knowing um, where we are in comparison to God, but just in thankfulness and gratitude for the grace that's been poured out, The, the amazing God that we serve. He actually loves us. He knows who we are. He loves us more than any any human on planet earth could love us. It's just, it's an amazing expression that just kind of wraps things up in a spiritual way in our heart. But if you got your Bible, uh, turn me to Acts chapter 17. We've been in the book of Acts. uh, And man, I, I, like I said last week, I love this stretch of uh, the book of Acts. There's just the, the beautiful way that you see the narrative take place, you know, in Acts chapter 15, we see uh, Paul launches back on another missionary journey with Silas. He meets up with Timothy last, uh, last week in Philippi, uh, and if, you, if you're a map person and you flip to that portion of your Bible, you see where Jerusalem is, and then you kind of see, you know, the traveling. If you look through like a modern map through Turkey and all the way around to Greece where Philippi is, and then Berea, and then around to the hook, uh, Paul ends up in Athens this week. And one of the things I love about this section of Acts is you've got narrative in script, narrative pieces of scripture uh, that you read that are part of the story that connect us to the ultimate story of redemption, but you also have prescriptive things in scripture, like things that we, we look at and say, these are things that God's asking us to do. These are ways that God's asking us to live. We find a lot of those in the epistles. But the way that we see the apostle Paul operating and the way that we see the gospel moving forward in the book of Acts combines the narrative and the prescriptive. And the reason that we know that is because we what we see in Acts chapter 17, what we see all across the book of Acts, we find again, as the Apostle Paul talks about things that he's done when he's talking to the Corinthians or he's talking to the church at Ephesus. We see the, the prescribed things there, but we see the action in Acts. So in other words, that's biblical hermeneutics. I see it here. Well, is this something that we're supposed to do? Again. We know that it's not, like certain things in the Bible aren't prescriptive, just to kind of get us all on the same page. Like you go to the Old Testament, you know, you see Solomon had 900 wives, 700 concubines. That's not prescribed. You know what I'm saying? That's part of the narrative. That's not what you're supposed to do. Actually, the narrative leads us to a place where he realizes everything that he chased after was meaningless. So it's leading us to the place of understanding that our hearts were built and made for the worship of one thing, and that is Jesus. So I love Acts for this reason. And I love today because as we look at this, and it was written so long ago, and this all happened so long ago, it is so relevant to where we are today. And it's relevant to our mission and our vision here, which is to invite anyone and everyone to experience the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus. We want people to experience what we've experienced. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, you are plan A. Like it's not just church staff, it's not just Dave, it's not the worship leaders or the, the 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 youth pastors of the world. It is us, the collective of the church, that is called. In fact, you have more leverage in the areas of your lives than I have. People get awkward when I drop the bomb that I'm a pastor and all of a sudden they run the other way. You guys have an opportunity that I don't have. You guys have leverage that I don't have. So we, as the collective, as the plan A for bringing the gospel, which is incredible. Fallen and broken, feeble and fallen clay carrying the unbelievable message of Jesus to the world. So as we dig in, I just want to, to ask this question because the Apostle Paul is going to be, he's moving around and kind of engaging people differently wherever he goes and he preaches the gospel. Um, but there's this thing in, in our culture when it comes to, being wrong or right. I actually um, just read an article in The New Yorker by uh, a lady named Katherine Schultz, which was absolutely fascinating. I found out she wrote a book and I'm going to go back and read it. I found some excerpts uh, from it just because I was fascinated. But she talked about the, the freedom of being wrong. Like that there was this freedom in being wrong. And I said, well, I gotta hear about this because nobody likes to be wrong. And um, she, she kind of breaks it down and talks about the, this issue and you know how it feels to be wrong. In fact, I wanted to ask this question. like, How does it feel emotionally to be wrong? Tell me. Terrible. terrible, awful, you feel embarrassed. Yeah, thumbs down, yes, absolutely. No, no one likes to, to feel wrong. But in fact, what's happening right now is you're responding to me, you're not really answering the question, how does it feel to be wrong? You're answering the question, how does it feel when you realize you are wrong? You know what I'm saying? We don't really care. We're wrong a lot and we have no idea or we just don't care. But it's that moment when you're in a conversation with somebody, when you realize that you're wrong. We wander around on the planet a lot. I imagine when we see Jesus face to face, we are all going to realize just how wrong we are. But the problem that exists, and Catherine Schultz kind of wraps her around this and has been thinking about this a lot because she's written, she's no, uh, um, she's won absolute journalistic awards for this. But the idea that you and I, we've been shaped to not be wrong. Like from a very young age, that's how we we operate for good or for bad. It's not that we shouldn't grade papers, but the less mistakes you make, you get rewarded. Nobody likes to be wrong. We're actually taught along the way that not to admit fault, to hide our mistakes. I mean, and when I was reading this, I'm just thinking this is the essence of the Garden of Eden. And this is the essence of humanity, our lack of being able to admit that we're wrong and move towards this place of freedom and repentance. And I, as I hear all of her talking, and I'm, I'm just like, I bet she's a Christian, but I, I, I couldn't find anything. But she believes in God. Like I've just read enough to know she, she thinks that there's something And this idea that you and I, we were, we do whatever we can to not be wrong. And the reason that we do that is because for us to be wrong can often mean that there's something wrong with us. And we take that personally. So we wander around in a world. Think about this in in the context of where we've been in the last year and where we are right now in our country in the, the polar sides. I mean, just take any argument, I mean, I could throw some out here and just all, all, automatically just, you could feel the tension. Like, how do you feel about this issue? Like I could just drop it in the, in the mix, you know? And it would, all of a sudden, you would start thinking about the people that believe that way, the conversations that you've had and the things that you've done and the ground that you're standing on that, that says, I'm right about this. Like, I can't believe that this many people believe this and that I believe this. And it's all about rightness, or righteousness. It's where, it's, where we, it's where we carry things in our chest. In fact, Catherine Schultz says this, and I love it because it's, it's something that we would find in the Bible. She says, the internal sense of rightness is not a reliable guide to what's actually right. That sounds familiar. I mean, you read the Psalms, read Proverbs. You know, The heart is deceitful above all things our emotional connection to our ideology and the things that we believe, sometimes we're wrong people. Right now, there's no doubt that I have some things that I feel very confidently about that I'm wrong about. And so do you. Now, how does that, what, what, is that, what does that mean? Or how does this even matter when it comes to what the apostle Paul's doing? Well, it it matters because we're in a culture where we all feel, not just the people that aren't Christians, but we all have this internal sense of wanting to be right or wanting to be righteous. I mean, it was the problem that Jesus was trying to break down when he came and he had these conversations with the Pharisees saying, you're whitewashed tombs. You're wearing your rightness on the outside when inside you're very, very wrong. But we live in a world, Christian and non-Christian, where all of us are standing in a position wanting to be right and not wanting to be wrong, not wanting to admit fault. So the Apostle Paul is thinking through his lens of I'm carrying the gospel to a lot of people that believe they're right about what they believe. They are standing on ideologies, they're standing on philosophies, they're standing on their religions, that's different than mine. And I'm walking in with this same sense of wanting to stand on my rightness about what I believe. So he thinks, how can I best bring the gospel message to this culture? Is it about winning the fight about who's right or is it about winning people? And the apostle Paul chooses the latter. He says, I'm gonna win people. I'm gonna move into each culture. I'm gonna move into each space. I'm gonna think about this idea of rightness and righteousness, but I've gotta keep in mind that I'm here to win people. I'm not here to win an argument. We need that in our culture, not just to carry the gospel, but just to survive in 2020, 2021. Got quiet in here, didn't it? Everybody's like, yeah, it's been a rough one. Well, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And it's an amazing, and amazing passage. So the Apostle Paul knows that every culture he moves into, every place that he moves into, there's an internal sense of righteousness. There's this inter- internal sense of my ideology, my philosophy, whether it was the Jews and Judaism or it was the pagan cultures that he rolled into. But he also knew that everybody was seeking truth. There's this freedom and confidence that the Apostle Paul had that everybody needed Jesus. He knew, he knew that everybody, everywhere he went, just like we were talking about, as Gerald was talking about in worship, people are hurting, people are hungry, people are actually way more open to hear about Jesus than you would think. We kind of stand back like, man, I am scared to drop the the Jesus bomb in any conversation because of what people, people are so open. People are hurting, people are in that space where they've set aside a lot of the anguish and issues that they've had simply because they're like, there's gotta be something. There's gotta be more than this. They look around at the status of the world and the suffering of the world, and they're like, is this the end? Are we just gonna grind it out until we die? Do we just gain as much as we possibly can and pass it on to our kids, and that's the end? We just become worm food? People know that that's not where joy is found or happiness is found. There's this nagging existential itch. People are open. The Apostle Paul knows that people want truth. They don't just wanna wander, Psychology today says, given the choice between a life of limitless pleasure as a brain in a vat or a gen- genuine human life along with all its pain and suffering, most people would opt for the latter. Why? Because they want truth. I mean, that's the matrix thing. Anybody matrix people? That's the red, pl- that's the red pill, blue pill, right? I just want the steak dinners and pleasure the rest of my life. Just put me in the soup and that, shove me in the little drawer and let me think what I'm thinking. And what does he choose? He chooses truth. He chooses the pain. He chooses actual the reality of life. So there's an internal sense that we want that. The Apostle Paul knows both of these things, the rightness that we carry and that we want. And he also knows that people need Jesus, every single human being. He goes in with that confidence, not confidence in himself, but confidence in what he knows about Jesus and confidence in the spirit that's inside of him. So like I said, in Acts chapter 17, he's traveled around. He's ended up in Athens. He's with Timothy and Silas in Berea. He's preaching to the Jews there in the uh, synagogues and ruffles some feathers, even though he goes in sensitively, but takes the Holy Scriptures and leads them to the resurrection. A lot become Christians, but a lot of them were very upset because he was stomping on what? Their rightness. They thought they were right, and here comes a new idea. Here comes a different way of looking at the thing they've always looked at, and they didn't like it, and his life was under threat. So they said, hey, Paul, we're we're not under threat, but you are, so you need to head on to Athens and wait for us. So the Apostle Paul's waiting for his boys in Athens. So it says that um, the Apostle Paul in verse 16. So I, I, I just wanted to, as we go through this, We're going to look at three revolutionary postures used by the Apostle Paul to communicate the gospel. Three revolutionary postures used by the Apostle Paul to communicate the gospel. So, as we read verse 16, we're going to see the first one. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So, what was this posture? So he rolls into Athens, he's there just to wait for Timothy and Silas. But what's he doing? One, he's looking around. He's checking things out. The apostle Paul noticed people. It's not revolutionary in some ways, but for us as human beings who walk around very selfish in in our day when we're waiting on something or we're moving, we're going from A to B, we're taking the kids to soccer practice, we're doing what we're doing. Noticing people actually would be a miracle on planet Earth in the culture that we live in. To actually look around and think through other people's lens and see what's happening around the city that we live in, the world that we live in. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That word distressed there doesn't mean angry because they think differently than I do. He was sad. He was saddened because he knew that people needed Jesus. He was sad because he knew that he had this amazing gift of grace and these people were missing it. He was seeing that every one of them had a heart of worship, but they were worshiping all of the wrong things. They had this nagging existential itch and needed something, but they didn't know what that something was. And the apostle Paul was sad. He wasn't mad because it wasn't about being right about what he believed and winning. It was about winning people. And so the apostle Paul sees people and that would be a supernatural miracle to sit in an unplanned waiting space in our life and notice people, eyes off of our own agenda, the person that's serving us in a restaurant, walking across the threshold of any room in any building with a mindset of looking around and not being, I'm often bothered and I kind of enjoy it. Um, I mean, just you know, it's something to talk about, you know, it just bothers me. Doesn't to bother you. Um, you know what I mean? That's not the posture that the apostle Paul had. He was distressed and bothered simply because he had a, he had something in his chest that he knew was truth. He knew that people were looking for it and he was in. He has he had this amazing hope. That people would find it. So the Apostle Paul was sad so you notice people, number one, number, if we go into verse 17, it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So the apostle Paul, that was his zone. He knew the Bible really well. One of the most intelligent human beings to walk planet earth at this, in, this, uh, in this century and in this particular time um, in scripture. So he shared with them in the synagogues as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he didn't just go to church. A man was out and about. He was in the marketplace. He was with other people outside of. So it was in the synagogues and in the marketplace. It says there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? I and mean, that's just a side note. Even if you're bringing it the right way, even if you're coming at it from a, a posture of grace, people aren't going to like the gospel. Sometimes people are going to be Just like, what is this garbage? This guy is ignorant. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Why? People like to be right. So others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, still there today, actually. If you go there and you go see the Acropolis in Athens on the little road headed up there, you'll see a little plaque that says, here lies the Areopagus. It's still there today, but this is a place where these people had these discussions about philosophy, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. you got the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans thought, you know, eat, drink, be merry, and then you die. They're like, hey, you just need to live life as fast and as hard as you can because at the end it's all over. And the Stoics were a little bit, you know, glass half empty, a little bit kind of "Mm," like, hey, life's awful. Like you are going to experience excruciating pain deal with it. I mean, that was kind of the the two philosophies that were semi-connected, but on different ends. And so they go to the the meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Verse 21, I love that it wraps it all up and says, this is how these people were. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So in the Areopagus, they would, they would go there, and it was very elite. For Paul to be invited there was a special thing, because the people that spoke in the Areopagus were, were amazing orators. When I was in college, I was in a lot of different persuasion classes at Florida State, and I remember we talked about the Areopagus, we talked about the, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and how they... They would take their idea, they would take what they believed was right, and they, had, they would craft their message, they would craft what they were going to say to lean people in their direction. Attorneys often study that too, like we'll study the, the art of persuasion, how, do, how to speak well. And the Apostle Paul was invited to say, hey, give it a shot, man. Come in the round. Speak to us about these new ideas in the Areopagus. It's an elite place. But I love that the Apostle Paul, he jumps in and he's not bringing the Berean message that he had for the Jews in the synagogue. He's going to change his tune. So in verse 22, it says, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see in every way that you are religious. I love the the confidence. I mean, you got an exclamation point there. Paul's confident right here. And you might think, well, it's just, it's, he's Paul. But Paul was very clear. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and another place in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, hey, I just want to let you all know, I am not one of those eloquent speakers. I, I'm, not an, I'm not eloquent of speech, but the message that I, that I bring is a message of power. So Paul wasn't confident that he could go over and just drop a bomb. Like, but he was confident. I mean, I love that there's enough. He didn't just roll up and go, does this thing on? I just... Uh, so everybody, I'm um, not sure what I'm going to say right now, but I don't really know what to do with my, my hands. He didn't go in there like that. He was very, he just said, people of Athens. He was confident in the spirit that was in within him and the power of the message that he was bringing to the people in that moment. And I just want to, I mean, that's just a side note, because I think sometimes we are absolutely struck with fear, but that's because we've laid all of the whether I'm right or I'm wrong on our shoulders. Well, how am I gonna to respond to the carbon dating question? You know, how am I, well, what am I gonna do when they talk to me about the dinosaurs? I don't know. You know, we're worried about all of those things when in fact, the power of the spirit lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. I think it's an amazing kind of transformation of thought just to think about the apostle Paul rolling in saying, man, I'm, this isn't me. This is the message that God is bringing. So he says, I see in every way that you are religious. And this begins and sets him in a direction that leads us to number two. So number one, he saw things and he saw people. His eyes were lifted off of his own agenda, his own journey, and he begins to see people. And then he intentionally knew things about them and their culture. I understand your world. I'm looking carefully around at your objects of worship. And I see in every way that you're religious. The apostle Paul knew their culture. He took days to study their culture and he knew things about the Athenian culture anyway, before he rolled into town. And it's obvious from some of the things he's getting ready to say. He knew their culture. He wasn't completely separated from the culture. Like Jesus said, hey, leave them. He he prays to the father, leave them in the world, but protect them from the evil one. You know, in the world, not of the world. But that doesn't mean in the world, not of the world, doesn't mean we're here, but we're obstinate to everything that has everything to do with everybody else's ideology and culture. Like the Apostle Paul says, don't judge the outsider. They have no reason for choosing light. We should actually be looking more at ourselves and saying, hey, we probably need to be the ones repenting more. But to the outsider, until they know Jesus, we're not, that's not our business to be judging them. In fact, we should get to know their perspective and their point of view. First Corinthians chapter nine, I love This in the message, in the way the the Apostle Paul says it here. He says, I have voluntarily become become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. He says, "I, I, I came to serve these people in Athens. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. That is key. But listen to this. He says, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. He's coming in, experiencing things from their point of view. He's looking at them and he's not bringing the Berean message and the synagogue message and leading them with the authority of the Holy Scriptures because that wasn't their authority. He's getting ready to jump into it with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers from a position of philosophy in Athens in a pagan culture. Pretty amazing in the way that he's crafting his message. He didn't do the the Christian thing you know, we're, you know, we all kind of separate ourselves and put ourselves in the let's go. Let's Oh, I'm in a new town. Let's see if we find any Christian brothers and sisters. I hear there's a place called Sago. We can go and have some fellowship. Now he goes to the Areopagus. He ends up in it with people. He ends up in places talking to people and understands and knows the culture enough. He's not, he doesn't Sit back and look at the culture and say, oh, you know, and and worry about it. Like the idea that we should, you know, move out of town. I mean, I know people, when certain things happen in our country, they're like, man, I'm just going to move out to Montana. We're going to do our own thing. Wear bonnets, churn our own butter. You know, we're going to move out. God has not called us to do that. We are to be in our culture. Not just in it, in our right corner, in this corner where these people are right. I'm going to sit right corner, left corner, you know, very political. But it's, it's exactly what we do. We are here. We have, to, we have to live with these people. So let's figure out, let's try to, because what we do in our rightness is I'm going to try to persuade people to my, the way that I think about things. And they're trying to persuade you to the way that you think about things. But look at the Apostle Paul. He's like, I want to see things from their point of view. I want to get on the ground down where they are. I'm not here to call them up to some elitism. We're all the same. We're all in need of a savior. We all need redemption. The apostle Paul knows it. And so he's leading these people with grace. He knows what they're reading. He knows what what they they listen to. He knows what they're thinking about. He knows what their bent is. He's looking around at Athens where one historian says it was 30,000 different altars, 30,000. And he's saying, these people are looking for something. They are searching for something. We should know our culture. And we're often off put by it, not get absorbed by it, but we should know it. I, I read the, the most read books in 2020 and I just picked three of them. Um, I should put them on the screen, but because some of the titles have profanity, I didn't. Um, the first one is, you are a bad, you can fill in the blank, XXX, you're a bad whatever. How to stop doubting your greatness and start living an awesome life. I mean, and you look at that and behind closed doors, you know, you're like, I I, I can't even imagine myself buying that, going to Barnes and Noble's going, I'm buying You Are the Bad Book. Yep, that's me. (laughs) But deep down in places you don't want to talk about, you're like, you know, I do kind of want to be bad. You know what I mean? Like, I want to be this guy. I want to stop doubting myself. We should know, like, what are people, what are people reading? This is about starting living in all, like, stop doubting your greatness, we can all get on the common ground. This is what the Apostle Paul would do, getting on the common ground saying, this is what this is on the New York Times bestseller. So many people are reading this and it's all about insecurity and how to, how to not be insecure and be a bad whatever. But all of us can relate to that. That's not a your issue and my issue, my ideology, your ideology, your religion, my religion. That's all of us understand insecurity and the problem of insecurity. Now all of a sudden I've got a little bit of a grasp on the world around me. Another one was uh, it's called option B, facing adversity, building resilience and finding joy. It's all about finding joy in the midst of adversity. I'm like best-selling, New York Times bestseller. We all can relate about finding joy in the midst of adversity. We just w- went through 2020. We've got people that are experiencing excruciating pain right now in our church. But the outside world is also experiencing excruciating pain. And the Apostle Paul would say, I want to see things from their perspective. I want to see things from their point of view. In fact, I understand where they are. I can see through their lens. And as Christians, we look at titles like you are a bad whatever. And we're like, that's good. Keep the children away. You know, we don't want to read that. But we need to lean towards what is that? And why is the world so pulled in by it? You know, there was another one that's even worse than that. The subtle art of not giving up. A, a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. It's all about approval. Not giving up whatever. And we're all, as Christians, we're like, you know, that's a bad title. I but we should know about it. We should know that it's read by millions of people. New York Times bestseller. So many people read it in 2020. I didn't read it. And probably a lot of us didn't read it simply because of the title. I'm not telling you to go out and buy it. But for us to be enough in the culture to understand that this is is what people are leaning towards. And we can relate to it. All of us can relate to this idea of how thinking about what other people think about us is a big deal. We can all relate to the rest of the world when it comes to that. As Christians, we're all the same. It's always us and them. It's just us. Sinners in need of a savior. We all struggle with the approval issue. We all struggle with that. And it's how we begin to get on the ground. And you, you see the Apostle Paul do that. What songs are popular? I'm terrible. As a, as a, it's, I can ruin songs for my children just by knowing them. You know, all of a sudden, I mean, it's like Post Malone. All of a sudden, just like kids are like, moms that are 36 to 40 know Post Malone. We're done with them. I just saw his face in Walmart. I'm out. You know, I just, they, it's, it's like we ruin them. But we should know. I mean, Billie Eilish, I mean, I've just ruined it for, you know, my kids already. Billie Eilish, she's a song, it was a chart topper, everything I wanted. And I just read this lyric and I just thought this is, this is it. The world needs to know this. I had a dream. I got everything I wanted. I have to be honest. It might have been a nightmare. And I just thought, man, that is the, the heart of the philosophical question, if I achieve, and Billie Eilish is really talking about her real story of achieving fame, of achieving all that she wanted and realizing this is a nightmare. This is nothing like I thought it would be. I mean, you talk about a hinge and a segue into the gospel. I mean, it's, what the, I mean, it's in the age old Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. I got it all, what was it? Meaningless. Right there, Billie Eilish, philosopher for the day should know. Be in the culture. We should know the culture that we live in. I want to be connected to Christ. I don't want to fall prey to the culture, but we should know. We shouldn't be, I mean, the apostle Paul didn't roll onto the scene. Like, I've been in my prayer closet for seven years. Let me lead you through the holy manuscript, you know, show you how to be washed by the blood of the lamb. No, he came in from the philosopher's perspective. He didn't come in with the perspective of leading somebody that was previously in in Judaism. So as he continues, he says, for as I walked around, he's still talking to him, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. 30,000 gods, he finds one with the inscription to the unknown God. And the apostle Paul's like, thank you, Jesus. This is my end. He's like, they've got 30,000 gods and there's one that's the unknown God, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is Jesus. I am going to lead them using the image of the unknown God. The, 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 this is perfect. He says, this is what they're looking for. They've got a catch all God. Like they've got 30,000 right there in Athens. And they're like, you know what? Just in case we're wrong. You know, you don't want to be wrong about it. Let's have an unknown one. We'll worship that one too. Just in case all the other 20, 29,999. We missed it. Unknown, cover all. The Apostle Paul says, all right, we got something here. He says, so you're ignorant. Now, I had to translate that because, you know, you don't want to roll around telling people they're ignorant. I mean, that's just, but in translation, in the Koine Greek, it really is unaware. Like he's saying, so you're unaware of the very thing you worship. And this is what I proclaim to you. So he says, unknown God, I got this. I want to lead you. Using your own culture. The God who made the world and everything in it. Now he begins to unpack what this unknown God is, the invisible God. So his job is not to win an argument, it's just to define who God is. He just wants to define who God is, define the invisible God that became visible for 33 years. Everything in it, and the Lord of heaven and earth. This is who he is. He does not live in temples built by human hands. So he's taking the context in which they're, they're all looking at, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone breath and life and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times and histories and boundaries of their lands. He's presenting the sovereignty of God in all things. He's saying God is bigger than what we've built or what we've put together He's not served by human hands. He's bigger than that. He's more capable than that. He is the one who put the sun, the moon, the stars in place. Every human being that exists, he launched in creation from from one man. Why? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He says all of creation, just like he says in Romans chapter 1, everything that we see is leading us to what? Not to absorb the created stuff, but to lead us to the creator. He says, these were all placed here that you might find him, that you might reach out. And then he says, he's not very far from any one of us. So now he's taken the sovereignty of God. And now he said, this is a personal thing. God is very personal. He knows who you are. He's not running away from you. In fact, he's chasing you. Verse 28, he says for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said. He knows what they're listening to on the radio. He knows. We are his offspring, he continues. He knows, this is, he's, what's crazy is before this was in the Bible, this was the invocation for Zeus. Isn't that crazy? He knows and they would all know it. They would know this opening invocation to Zeus. Poet Erastus wrote it hundreds of years before. And they're thinking, this guy knows our poetry. He knows about Zeus. And he's using it to relate the essence of the gospel using foreign poetry. So you could use Billie Eilish if you want to. There you go. Verse 29 says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is being like, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance or unawareness. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's leading them to repentance. And we always see repentance like that's a harsh thing to say. But he's just saying he's leading every, everyone there to the place of saying it's okay to admit that you're wrong because admitting you're wrong is the step towards understanding the one truth, the truth that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. It says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, who is Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I love this because it gives us a great opportunity because I think some, some people in the room, depending on your where you are on the scale of personality, some of you are truth tellers, some of you are lovers of human beings in a different way. Not that you can't tell the truth and love people, but you know what I'm saying. You know the difference. So the apostle Paul sees things from their perspective and their point of view, but he also doesn't tiptoe around the gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't, he's, not, he's not tiptoeing around. He goes right to repentance and the beauty of the resurrection, the risen Christ. Like there's proof of this. Jesus was raised from the dead, death, burial, and resurrection. Making it possible for you to connect with this God that you're not very far from. He doesn't tiptoe around it. He, he doesn't sit in a conversation where somebody's just absolutely trashing Christianity or trashing Jesus or talking about something that they believe and you're going, yeah, man, that's great. And it's completely against what you believe. No, you can speak up. You don't have to agree or walk in that place of, not ever being in a, in a position of conflict. The apostle Paul was, and people booted him out of town. But he always came in with the posture of grace, leading them, but he never sacrificed truth. Always brought the gospel. Love this. Number three. So he saw people, he knew their culture. And three, this is a big one. He didn't defend God, he defined God. He's not trying to prove that they're wrong. He didn't say, let me show you why you're wrong. Again, he's not trying to win the argument. He's trying to win people. He doesn't doesn't say, let me show you why these 29,999 gods are rubbish. Instead, he says, let me show you where you're right. You've got an unknown God. You've got the invisible God. I I can define God for you. I'm not gonna tell you how you're wrong. I'm gonna tell you who's right. The only one that is right. All of us are wrong. All of us are lost. There is none right. No, not one. But there is one that's right, and his name is Jesus. You see the difference? We come into conversations. We come into other people's world. We get in these places because we don't wanna be wrong. It's our instinct. And our posture is, I got to prove, I got to defend God. I got to make sure that I'm in the position to, he doesn't need to be, God's not up there going, man, I sure hope Dave gets this one right. You know, he's just not, he's not. We're not there to prove anything. We're there to lead people to the truth. You know, Tim Keller says, always come in, he says, what you see the Apostle Paul doing is he takes the authority that they trust and he starts there. We usually start, just as human beings, trashing the authority that somebody else trusts. Like, you watch Oprah? Might as well worship Satan. (laughs) Apostle Paul wouldn't. He would watch an episode. He would use the words of Oprah to lead somebody to Jesus. Somebody's gonna write me an email about how much I love her. I'm so sorry. Um, spam block up. Um, but, but our strategy, when we come in, we, he comes in and says, what authority do they trust? With the Jews, he said, Judaism. I'm going to take the, the, the Old Testament. I'm going to show them Isaiah 53 and I'm going to lead them and show them that the whole story is about Jesus. But he doesn't do that when he rolls into Athens, into the pagan culture of Athens. He says, I'm gonna come at it from the point of a philosopher because that was their authority. So what authority do they trust? God doesn't need our defense. He continues, he says, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some sneered and that's gonna happen. Some people are not just not gonna dig it. When you bring the truth, you're gonna have people they are gonna be like, you know what? I don't believe, it's not me. But others said, we wanna hear you again on this subject. And that's often the story people wanna to continue to hear. And it said, it said, at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. They mentioned those too because they, it was shocking that they would become Christians because they were they were so ingrained in the culture. They were so a part of the, the that, that would be like somebody that's on the, extreme side, like the opposite of Christianity that works at an extremely liberal university that's completely wrapped up in everything that you can think of that that doesn't make sense for them to become a Christian. It, It was like them becoming believers. And so Luke, the author's like, there was power in that message because there was no way these jokers were becoming Christians. But they did. And sometimes the journey is it's different for, for all of us as we're, as we're in these conversations. A lot of it's about asking questions, asking, asking a question rather than telling somebody something. Like when people, you ever get nervous when somebody says, are you a Christian? I do. I mean, like, what do you do? That's always mine, pastor. Um, ask, Respond with a question. Like when they ask you what you believe, are you a Christian? You say, yeah. What do you believe immediately? What do you believe? And then they'll say, you know, some people will say, I, I, I think there's, everybody's trying to find their own path and everybody's trying to find their own way. Keep asking questions. Well, what's your path? There's, so there's many paths. I get that. Well, what's yours? And you, and you move in that direction. You know, you start talking. You say, man, did you read that book by whatever? Did you read this? Man, this statement here. What does that make you think? And do you think you can get enough money? Do you think you can get enough fame to satisfy your soul? You think there's enough? Sure would be nice to win the lottery. I think we all would agree. You could sit on that common ground with somebody. Man, wouldn't it be great? What would you buy? But to move in those directions, asking those questions. I remember years ago, uh, it was actually pretty fairly, fairly recent, maybe the last three years, a friend of mine invited uh, this guy to church. Uh, he uh, was, was believed in Judaism, was Jewish, and um, so he believed in God, but didn't believe in Jesus and the resurrection. Um, came here, brought his daughter. She loved children's ministry, listened to stuff. And then afterwards, my buddy said, Hey, he wants to go hang out and and eat and ask questions. And this guy knew his faith. Um, so he, we went, we went, um, and hung out, uh, the three of us and we talked and I asked him lots of questions. He asked me things I couldn't answer. Um, just so you know, um, and it was great. And we talked about life. We talked about a lot of different things. Um, and then he, he came here, I think one or two more times. I mean, he came here on a Palm Sunday. When we, we go through sometimes Isaiah 53 like in detail, um, and exactly what Jesus went through um, from an Old Testament perspective, as he bore our, our sins on the cross. That, the, that this light has come, but he was this child that was meant to to die for the sins of the world. You know, by his stripes we are healed. Like he, all that stuff, all the the many things that Christ. Went through to bear the burden of sin, so that we could be reconnected with God. And at, at the end of it, he just came up to me, says, "Look, I've been I've been going to temple my whole life, and they don't ever cover this. And I'm going to do some investigation to see if this is actually in the Tanakh and in in the scriptures. So I'll talk to you later." And uh, he contacted me later and said, "It's all in there, and I can't believe I've never known this. I can't believe I've never seen this before. Like I've never I can't believe we don't talk about this because it it." It leads to this whole story that you talk about at your church, and I thought we are gonna get him saved. Baptism's coming, uh, and then nothing after that. Didn't come to church. Didn't I? Didn't see him again. I was just like, you know, what happened? And that's that happens sometimes. Like where you you lay this foundation, you get into this place, and you know you're you, you don't you're like, oh man. And then almost two years later, check this out. And this doesn't always happen, but there's always that season between now and sometimes it's gonna be in heaven when, when this happens. You're like, man, I was wondering if you'd make it. So I get this, I get this text from my buddy and he says, hey man, my buddy wanted, wanted me to, to copy and paste this text and send it to you because he thought you would wanna know. And I'll, I'll read some of it and I went and found it. Um, he says, hey man, talking to my buddy, He says, I wanted you to know that I'm getting baptized. And my my buddy (laughs) responds, he goes, "Um, does that mean that you're a Christian? (laughs) You mean you believe? And he says, yep, I guess I'm a Jesus freak. Pretty awesome. I remember reading that text and thinking, man, I wish this was every story, you know, like I wish you could get the end of every one of them. But man, God has put us in this position to gracefully and when at all possible, be at peace with people, look at things from their perspective, not sacrificing the essence of the gospel and not not sacrificing our own own movement towards the things of God, but to to lead with these postures of grace. And for for somebody that's, that's not here, I hope like for today that maybe your image of Christianity was... And the church has done this, like, and I've probably done this. Come at a posture of trying to be right, trying to win rather than to, to, to lead and look at people as, as human beings and not projects. I think that the church has, has maybe done that poorly. If you're here and you're trying to figure it out, maybe, maybe this has reframed it for you, that, that we're in the same position that you are. None of us is right. No, not one. There is one that is righteous, and we get to carry his righteousness. And we're just hanging on to a hope that we found. If there is truth, we believe that we found it. And my call to you, if you don't know Jesus is man, it's the same as the apostle Paul. I've, I've the unknown thing, the nagging in your heart that you don't know from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I know who he is and his name is Jesus. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love how you move in our hearts. We love your your word that you've given it to. You didn't leave us alone. You gave us the spirit, but you also gave us the word. God, sear it into our heart to give us confidence beyond ourselves.